Thanks for downloading our podcast. You can check out more of our episodes at facebook.com slash this house of cards podcast or on iTunes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this House of Cards podcast, the unofficial podcast for the Netflix show House of Cards. I am your host, Tyler Moss, here with co-host Chris Houston. What's up, everyone? What's going on, buddy? Not much. Just, you know, hanging out, getting old. What makes today special? Uh, it's my birthday. Thanks. <laughs> Let's not say what birthday it is, but it's my birthday. It's Chris's birthday, so we can all raise a toast to him. What are you drinking this evening? Cheers. Uh, since I'm a little bit older now, I am drinking a nice Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa. What are you drinking? That's very classy. I'm drinking a Great Divide Denver Pale Ale, so... <laughs> Not, uh, <laughs> so... It's beer, so it's, it's... Yeah, that's it's so not... good, man. <laughs> it's not bad. Cheers. Okay. Now, I want to remind everybody that you can go onto iTunes and rate us and review us. We appreciate all your comments. You can also email us at this house of cards podcast at gmail.com and you can go and like us on Facebook and leave us comments on our wall at this house of cards podcast. Um, but without further ado, let's break into house of cards chapter two. Um, I want to start out with this awesome scene. I mean, we, we start out immediately where episode one left off. Frank is sitting outside of the barbecue restaurant, and we see that the barbecue sauce is smeared across President Walker's picture on the head in the newspaper. This is right next to the article that, you know, Frank fed Zoe. Right. So we kind of had this victorious moment from, from Frank right here. I just thought that that barbecue sauce smeared across the president was such a cool image to open on. Totally. Um, I mean, what, what were your thoughts about like the, just like the directing decision here? first for me it was kind of like almost like blood or something like that you know it was very significant in the sense of uh the color choice but also the obviously because it's barbecue sauce it'd be that color but also just kind of the um the 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 smearing of someone isn't that the whole point of what um of um Frank's Underwood's mission in this whole uh, series is, is going to be is to smear this guy's name and take away his power. Great imagery. I didn't even think about that. I love the smear idea. And also, just like you're saying, I mean, barbecue sauce equating to blood. This is like first blood shed, first shots fired. This is like the beginning of his master plan, which we see continue falling into place in this episode. Totally. Um, so in the next couple scenes, uh, a few interesting things happen. We meet this character, Remy who um, used to, I, I believe, used to work for Frank, or he was like his, Frank's press secretary or something along those lines, but now he's a partner at this firm called Sandcorp. And Sandcorp, or Sandcorp is a big natural gas firm that donated a bunch of money to Frank and others through Frank um, because they were promised big returns uh, when Frank got the Secretary of State job. Well, Frank obviously did not get the Secretary of State job, so this They're Remy guy is rightfully concerned. Um, so... It, it, we see him reappearing later, but that's kind of part of what Frank has to set up now and why he needs to have control over Secretary of State instead of this Kern guy is because he needs to kind of pay back Sandcorp for all the money they donated to him and to whoever else he kind of helped feed. Um, but he has this great line where he says, it's a bit degrading, but when the tint's that big, everybody gets in line. He's kind of talking I wrote about, that know, down too. That was amazing. Up, you know? Great line. Great line. Um, and you know, obviously Frank has all the best lines in the show so far, but that's just another, that's, I feel like his monologue 
lines are the best written lines. I wonder I, if there's – do you think there's somebody that writes specifically for his – like his, his – okay. Also, I wanted to say this. I had thought last time that in Shakespearean literature and stuff, when you turn to the camera and like say something to the audience that has a specific word, it's not monologue. The word is soliloquy. Yes. So not that anyone right. really cares, but that's what that – those are called <laughs> the soliloquies. That's a little bit of a – theater nerd reference, I guess. But, I mean, do you think that the... I, I was just curious. Do you think there's someone who writes specifically the soliloquies? Because I, I feel like those are so sharply written. They are very sharply written. I don't know if it's a specific person or just the team putting their heads together and figuring it out, but uh, I agree. The, the best lines definitely come out of his his soliloquies. Um, and I will say, I know I judged it last time that I didn't like it as much, but I'm starting to get used to it. I am starting to yeah. get used to it. So, I... I the only thing that I think I'm missing with this, because my concern was that he's roping us along uh, as his cohort in this, uh, in this, I don't know, uh, mutiny or taking down of eventually the president is what I'm guessing he's trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just missing why I want to be on his team. I know apparently I'm part of his team, whether I like it or not, but I don't oh really God. know... I don't really know if I want to be on his team yet, even though Kevin Spacey's killing it as an he, actor. I mean, he's definitely charming and yes, endearing. Right. Um, I need a little more background of why I want him to win. He kind of makes you not like, I mean, whether or not you agree, I mean, he kind of makes you not like the people he doesn't like, but you're right. You're right. like, we're seeing things through his bias. So Right. Yeah, exactly. So I just need a little more background. But that being said, I am getting used to, to him uh, breaking down that fourth wall and talking to us and including us. I feel like I'm on the inside. I over for sure on the inside. And I want to talk about a line he says in that kind of monologue sequence after he talks to Remy. He says, um, y- you know, basically in this, pa- in this struggle, you choose between money and power. And everyone makes the mistake of choosing money. And, but he chose power. And he gives this great analogy about like this, how money is this old Victorian home that's slowly kind of becoming decrepit. Versus power is this stone building that kind of stands stronger for a longer duration of time. And... I mean, I was trying to figure out what, I mean, what he's trying to say with this speech. I mean, obviously he's wealthy too and stuff like that, but I guess the decisions he's making are, uh, I don't know, what what do you think he's trying to say with this? Yeah, he kind of comes across as trying to uh, tell us that power is something that will kind of last longer than money, because power will last past the time you die, um, regardless if it's a... some type of reign that his family will have or that his name would have for, for, for time to come. But on the other and on the other end, I don't really understand most people, i.e. Tupac, uh, F the fame, just give me the money. Cause money is something that people can really handle right now. Power is something that you have to be a certain type of person to want that, that fame and that power. Well, and obviously, I mean, you're saying he's talking about legacy and stuff like that. And whether or not his actual name is remembered, the actual events he's affecting are things mm-hmm. like whether or not people are aware of it. He's having a major role in history right now with what That's he's right. doing, undermining the Secretary of State nomination, redoing, revamping the education bill and stuff like that. I think he, he gets this adrenaline rush out of doing things that are affect, you know, affecting history or something yeah, like that. And he's kinda, I think you're right that he's talking like that's. That's that's what his legacy is going to be, whether or not people realize it is, is these major landmarks. And, you know, money is spent and then gone, you know. Right. Just like really, you were saying. Power can go away so quickly, though. Don't that's you think? Tr- like with that's one true scandal in politics. I, I can only assume that we're going to see how yeah. quickly it can be lost in this case, too. 
That's one of my um, things. Because we'll you've got to feel like he's gonna. I mean, right now he's right. He's on the very fast incline, and he's only gonna. He, something's gonna happen where he's gonna fall. And uh, frankly, I'm gonna predict in advance. I mean, we're not watching. I want to remind everybody, we're watching one episode at a time. We're not watching ahead of time. We're doing one episode right. a week. I'm gonna predict in advance that someone turns on him. My guess is probably Zoe. Someone's gonna do something that is going to end up stabbing him in the back. Don't you just feel like that's coming? Sure, because this was something I was going to bring up later at the end of this, but everything is going pretty damn smoothly for him right now. Everything is falling into place. Every manipulation, every tactic he's played against anyone is just coming out with on like coming up roses for him. Oh yeah, there's no no one's stuck any sticks in his spokes yet, and so it, right. you got to see that coming. Um, I'm not sure who it's going to be. Maybe it's even Claire. I mean. I think that's possible too. I, I could feel there be. I mean, right now, obviously, they're on page, but I could feel there being some tension down the line because she's obviously such a strong character too. Well, isn't um, anyway. Sancorp? Sancorp is also involved with her company, the Clean Water Initiative, I believe, as well. Were they the ones who were going to donate money? I yeah, I I think so. I think they were mentioned in the first episode, but I'd have to I have to go back and look. So I probably shouldn't be saying that. I might be lying. <laughs> But I do believe they're involved with her as well. Right. Okay. And they do. Or if they're not, I'm, I won't be surprised um, if we find out that out later on. <laughs> and I promise I've only seen the first two episodes. In the meantime, you know, Frank is, is asked, he's kind of given autonomy on this education bill after, you know, Blythe's copy is leaked and everything like that, which is how the last episode ended. And, you know, um, so. Frank brings in all these, like, the six smartest minds in education. They look like all, you know, college students or something like that and holds them up in this room and says, you guys basically have you six days to come up with, or maybe ten kids or something like that, but you have six days to come up with, you know, the best education bill possible. And he puts them all in one room, and then he walks into the one, other room, have, and there's... Wait, I have, one, I have one thing I want to say about this, and this is totally an aside. We don't need any commentary on it, but very diverse-looking group, wouldn't you say? I would say we have a little bit of everything. Yes. We However, have... we only have one woman. Only Very one mul- woman. That's true, but it is multicultural. Multicultural, but not multi-gender. Well, he, yes. <laughs> multi-gender. But, he, well, he is a Democrat, so. <laughs> um, okay, so Frank is overhauling the education bill. In the meantime, Donald Blythe is there in his office apologizing, which is, uh, I mean, Frank totally set this up. He plays him um, like a fiddle on this man, and he basically talks Donald into taking the sword, taking the fall for the late bill, even though we know that it was Frank who handed it over to Zoe. He sharpens he says, the sword, and he gives this great like Shakespearean line about how a martyr craves the sword to fall on. So all we do is sharpen it and wait for him to pass. You know, so wait good for him to fall onto it. Brilliant. And he basically gets Donald to suggest himself that he should be the one to take the fall, and that Frank should take the lead on the new bill. And Frank kind of says, well, little do we know that we already have everybody in the next room working on the bill. And I love this part where he says, like, when Donald's like, well, someone else should take it over. And, and Frank kind of looked, took, turns his eyes to the camera and says, then who should take it over? And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> once again, we kind of have that part where the camera's playing our perspective a little bit. We kind of see it move with us. And he gives us a little aside in the middle of something. I mean, right. that's, what, uh, that's what the soliloquies do, too, is kind of this insider feeling like we're right. – a, an observer at all these intimate moments, but he's the only one that can see us, you know? Um, and so this ed- education thing is playing, has played right into his palm. And now we have kind of his next big mission, which is to take down Kern and replace Kern with his um, other choice for Secretary of State. 
And so Frank meets Zoe in secret and wants her to... Um, we got our first Deep Throat reference in this, uh, in this sequence. We do, and we have some questionable journalism stuff going on here that I want to talk about with you, with you for a sec. So basically, Frank and his staffers found this article that Kern wrote in college. Or not Kern even wrote. He was the editor of the newspaper at the time this article was written. Right. And it's this article about how occupation of the Gaza Strip was illegal or something like that. And so they're trying to use that to show that Kern was anti-Israel back then in college because he was the editor and should have had the last word on whether or not this article was published. And I had a line that called the occupation of the Gaza Strip illegal. Um, So first of all, I want to (laughs) say Zoe, as a journalist, is not necessarily ready to take this, you know, because she says... What can I do? There's There's no story. There's there's no story here. And he says, I'm just telling you there's a question that needs to be asked. And then he gets mad at her and says, like, you'll remember this moment when you resisted me. Um... And she totally falls for it and ends up p- pushing it through um, in, in kind of playing hardball in the editorial meeting. And, you know, her editors seem to, see, to say the same thing. What's the story here? And she says the same thing. Well, there's a question that needs to be answered. So what are, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, this is a little bit. We're really now towing the, the right. line with, with ethical journalism here. True. We we've used. Uh, I mean, they've used this in the in the in the show. But um, the analogy of uh, blood and sharks. This is basically just dropping a putting a drop of blood in the ocean. Uh, it's not a story. It's not chum. It's not substance. But it's a drop of blood that media is going to pick up on like that. And once the media picks up on it and starts publishing things about it, asking this question or just looking at this situation then obviously it's going to influence the public opinion, which is also going to influence, in the end, uh, how um, the nominating uh, people in, 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 uh, in Congress are, or in, uh, in Washington in general are going to react. And, and this comes up later, too, and I was going to talk about it later, but I want to bring it up now because I can see, I mean, it's the same thing here and later when they do the story on um, uh, Kathy, you know, the, the Catherine, person that basically Frank um, wants to make, yeah. Make uh, new secretaries. Catherine Durant. Durant. Kathy Durant. Um, it's the same idea. Is like basically by you know planting a question that needs to be answered, or by even planting in that, in the other case, it's far more you know it's far more they're far more open about it, and they're creating the news by planting you know by planting this question, they're creating implications and assumptions. I mean, they're planting a story that's not there. They're making the news basically. So you see the news making the news instead of covering the news, and that's kind sure. of. Certainly commentary on what 24-hour news networks do these days and how when you have that much time just by, you know, you see whether it's MSNBC or Fox News, by just raising a question about something, they're creating a story that was not necessarily there but making it a story by just bringing questions in the first place about it. And then it lights that fire or that spark and then it it can blaze through like wildfire and whatever audience is tuning into that that, uh, network. And so it raises some, I mean, questions about whether or not journalism should be just, uh, you know, the nonpartisan, you know, bystander that's just factually reporting things as they happen, or whether or not it's journalism's responsibility to raise questions that need to be answered. And I think that's tough because I think, that, you know, you, it's arguable that there's some major stories that wouldn't have ever been broken if questions hadn't been floated out there to begin with, but that can definitely be taken advantage of by media outlets, and you can have you know, things that aren't true or like small stories blown way out of proportion as we see with this whole Gaza Strip thing. Absolutely. 
Um, so obviously uh, she ends up printing the article and you see uh, Kern be pretty much confronted by George Stephanopoulos. I love that. I know. Cameo by George Stephanopoulos. <laughs> Who has an advanced copy of Zoe's article and Kern's super on the defensive and he gives this little awkward laugh that Frank just loves. That was well played, like, I think accurately how a lot of times something, even in an interview, can just, that spliced moment that and, and it can be pulled out and played on repeat on YouTube, and he just looks like a total asshole now. It's that little, that little bite of one part. I mean, you can, that's what he was saying. You just, all that you need is that laugh, and they can just loop that. That becomes the internet meme. Think of, like, right now, Marco Rubio drinking the water. Like, Absolutely. no one remembers the rest <laughs> of the speech. That's all they think of. So it's the same thing. Like, that's, he uncomfortably laughs at the whole Israel thing. That becomes the topic of conversation. Soon he's getting blasted on it about Israel uh, by, you know, all these representatives from both Palestine and Israel. Right. Right. Who, so, I have a question about this. Before we go into um, Russo going off on and doing his little adventure, um, Frank's right-hand man, the guy, his, 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 I guess, I was, is it his chief of staff? I don't know. I, I think it is. I don't, I don't even know what his name is. I've just been calling right. Frank's chief of staff, yeah. Right. He's getting a little, sh- he's getting shadier and shadier to me, man. He is doing a lot of the dirty work or setting up a lot of the, um, of the dirty work that needs to be done. But, you know, meeting at diners at 1 a.m. and, uh, oh man, he's, he's. And the hooker. Let's not forget that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Open your mouth. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. He, no, he's becoming dirty. He's playing in the shadows a little bit. I, right. I, he, he can get Frank. He can get Frank in trouble too. I think. I oh, mean, totally. I, I feel like we have. We'll, we'll see a lot with him to come in the future. I, I, I guarantee it too. And so, like you were saying, basically, so kind of following down this whole um, illegal Gaza Strip story, uh, Frank Staffer finds out that the guy who originally wrote the piece or was involved with the newspaper now kind of writes this extremist blog. This kind of anti. It's kind of like it sounds like almost like an anarchist kind of blog. Um, lives in, is it like California or do we know where he lives exactly? It's, uh, I thought it was Boston or something. Maybe oh, is it really? Wrong. I'm not sure exactly where it is. That might be a lie too. But he's like in this like trailer park. It doesn't really matter, I guess. But they send basically Russo to go hunt him down because, you know, he's after they bailed him out of the jail last episode, he's kind of become, he's in their you know, Congressman Russo's become Frank Stooge or, you know, pawn basically. So they send him to go meet with this guy. Um, and we, I mean, this, you have this trashy moment where he, the guy doesn't want to let him in at first, but he has the alcohol and come in and his girlfriend's topless on the couch in her underwear. And there's like a bong on the couch and everything. And, and then he whips out his sack of blow. That's how Russo seduces him with the alcohol first and then with the cocaine. Yep. Um, so they get into this. I feel like they're all a little too old to be doing that, but. Well, apparently it's a regular habit for Russo. Yeah, man, he is a party boy in the Congress, isn't he? Oh, he is. And so they get into this conversation, and basically what we find out is we got Freebird playing in the background, I also want to say, which is kind I know. Of funny. I didn't know I felt about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the blogger basically says, you know, I wrote the whole thing. Kern didn't have anything to do with it, but he was an extremist at this point in time. We had some really crazy conversations here. So Russo says, basically says, I want you to lie about it and say that he did write it. In his best and, sober face, he says this. And as he's rolling the joint, and he, so then he says, like... The fat can, joint. Oh, my God. He's like, well, you, he, I'm not a part of the system. You can tell by how great I rolled this joint. And then we have the, the awesome part, of, like, the cinematic part where the, the scene ends as soon as he lights the lighter, you know? But I just think it's funny that, like, his three-step seduction of this guy was the... Bring it, showing up with, like, the vodka or whatever it was. 
cocaine is part two to get him to start talking. Then to get him to lie, he just had to roll a good joint. <laughs> Loose coke and weed, man. The, that guy was easily convinced. <laughs> Very easily convinced. So they get him to start lying. In the meantime, we see that staffer of Frank's we were talking about meeting with a hooker, paying off this hooker $10,000 to this, never mention. Right. This was the girl that was in the car when he got pulled over for the DUI, right? That's right. This is the girl that was in the car when he got pulled over for the DUI. So they pay her $10,000 to keep quiet about Russo. Then he tells the staffer, tells her to open her mouth, which was a very awkward part. And then he puts some money in well, her mouth and he says, right. this is... The camera did a really interesting thing too because at the time the chief of staff guy, he stands up and it's basically like almost a crotch shot of him. And we're like, oh no, is he, what's going on here? But then he puts the money in her mouth like, oh, okay. Because he's maybe that's in his pockets. Else. Yeah, yeah. Right, and then it actually turns out, yeah, he will be going there anyway. It doesn't matter. It he was, says, gonna, yeah, this, it's going to happen. This is, this is for me, and then, bam, jacket's coming yep. off. So he's he's getting he's kind of liking the down and dirty role he's playing right now. He like he he seems to kind of enjoy playing in the shadows here. He does. Well, he and he didn't come across like that the first time we met him. I thought he was, you know, chief of staff, nice guy, clean cut, older, well, old enough, and he's getting darker and dirtier as as the uh, episodes go on. Absolutely. Um, so that's kind of the the whole Russo thread, and we'll talk a little bit about the you know them feeding the story to Zoe in a minute. In the meantime, I want to talk about this kind of. Um, there's a scene we have here where Frank and Claire are standing next to each other, kind of smoking, looking out a window, passing the cigarette back and forth. And one thing I want to know, I want to notice that Claire is the only person that calls Frank Francis. Yeah. Um, Kind of, it's like a term of endearment, I guess, between them a little bit. But it's also kind of, it reminds you of kind of like a motherly term, like, you know, when your mom calls you by oh. your full name kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess it's kind of her, I wonder if it's kind of her way of asserting power over him a little bit, because she's the only one. I mean, he's a powerful man and he manipulates everyone else, but she's kind of the only person that is able to pull his strings a little bit, you know? Right. This reminded me of, this is silly, but my, uh, you, you remember the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's a scene and F- Francis does this with other people, but also uh, Claire does this with Francis or Frank. Um, they, they say the man may be the head in the family, but the woman is the neck and the woman can make the head turn any direction it wants to. And that totally reminded me of how uh, Claire can pull the right strings, like you were saying with Frank and make him do things that she needs him to do for him oh, yeah. and for her. Oh, yeah, she knows what she's doing, and she's, like we saw last time, she's kind of the one that got him worked up and angry and kind of got the plan flowing when he was a little bit in shock and not sure what to do after the whole he didn't get a Secretary of State nomination thing. So she's right. kind of pulling his strings, and he's pulling everyone else's strings, just like exactly. he's the neck. Mm-hmm. They're both so manipulative. They're both so manipulative. Do you think, this is a question I have, and I'm sure they're, they're going to fight about this down the line, but do you think he is totally aware of how much she does uh, pull his strings? No, I, I mean, I think, no, I don't Because he's a so. smart guy. Like, he knows when, what, how, how to be man, manipulative, and she's doing it to him. You don't think he can see that? I don't think he, like, underestimates her or anything like that necessarily, but I don't think necessarily he realizes, like, the extent to which she's kind of, you know, you see all these scenes in which they talk, and then it kind of follows her as she's, like, listening to him, or, like, you kind of, and this is what I was also going to say, um... So let's talk about the rowing machine, too. We, and actually, in this scene where they're smoking, we kind of get some really kind of... It's actually like a... It, it seems so out of context here. We have like this loving conversation between a husband and wife about like, 
I want you to live longer and you have a healthy heart and all this kind of stuff. You know, I'm not right. worried about your brain, but I'm worried about your heart and your, right. your longevity. And it, like, what's going on with this rowing machine thing? Well, I, I think it all it re- represents two things. One is because we hear this about the ro- rowing machine with his uh, in his relationship with Claire, but we also hear this with Frank's relationship with uh, the chief of staff Vasquez, the the president's chief of staff. Oh yeah, yeah. Is Linda. it Vasquez? Yeah, Linda, Linda Vasquez. Yeah, Vasquez. Okay. Um, he hates being micromanaged. He does not want to be micromanaged. He gets mad at Vasquez for trying to do that, and he gets mad at his wife for trying to tell him what to do with his body and to stay in shape. So I think that's just, initially, that's probably what it is to hammer at home, that he does not want to be told what to do. However, obviously, in the end, we find out that he kind of gives way in one of, the, in one of those uh, arguments. And maybe this is just another representation of how Claire's pulling his strings while he's pulling everyone else's strings, you know? Right. Totally. Yeah. That's kind of how this, this scene ends. Um, anyway. Yeah. Okay. So we have that. And then in the meantime, let's, let's follow Claire a little bit. Obviously she's going through this major overhaul at the charity and I don't entirely understand what her agenda is here. It seems like there's some shady stuff we're not quite aware of yet. We know yeah. that she was expecting money that is now not coming, but maybe it will because the secretary of state's going to become Frank's pawn. But she was letting 18 people go, and she has, you know, this, her, you know, direct, you know her number assistant. two, Evelyn, do all this. Her, Evelyn's been with her a long time. They've really built this up. Claire's an is ice really queen. I got to say that, though. Say it again? She's an ice queen, man. She is, like, just cruel and cold. Like, she does I, not show any emotion when Evelyn keeps pleading with her to not have to fire all these people. Is this really the direction they need to go? And after Evelyn fires everybody, she fires Evelyn. I know. God, that, that made me really not like Claire. It's like, come on. And, you know, Evelyn leaves, and it just you look at Claire for a while here, and it's like she kind of sits there for a few minutes, and you're trying to study her face, and I'm trying to – I'm asking myself, like, does she look remorseful at all? Exactly. I was looking at the same thing. What did you think? I, couldn't, I, I, I saw a reaction, but I couldn't tell what it was. It wasn't happy. It wasn't sad or remorseful. I don't know. I think that she is, and I don't – I mean, I think that she's – is I, the reason I say that is she seems like a nice queen, uh, but I do think that she is remorseful. And the reason being like, okay, she felt the need to go out and give this whole we're evolving speech and everything like that. And maybe that was just to motivate the people. But then we also see the scene later where she's at Starbucks and she mm-hmm. sees the older woman working at the cash register. And you know she's thinking there. What it's supposed to be representing is she's, you know, because Evelyn says, I'm 49 or however many years old, 59 or something like that. How am I ever going to get another job? No one hires people my age. Only to bag groceries. A bag at groceries. And then, like, you see this older woman not figuring out how to work their gro- you know, the cash register at, like, Starbucks or whatever. And the younger girl comes over and, like, fixes the computer right. for her. And you know, and Claire's That's mind, what she's, she's thinking. While Claire's yeah. he- holding her 20 out hella rudely, like, in her, in the f- woman's face. I, I don't know. I, I know. I know we're supposed to see that and realize that she's probably feeling a little bad and sympathizing with, you know, the older woman trying to get a job and this poor woman has to work in the coffee shop, but I'm still not really sympathetic for Claire yet. I'm not sympathetic for her, but I think that we are supposed to see that she does have a little bit of a heart, even though it might be packed enough. Uh, I don't even know. I think I think we're supposed to see that she's aware of the situation, but I don't know if maybe, she's maybe actually, so. like, feeling bad about it yet. yet. I don't I know. I'm curious where this whole thing is going with the charity, though, and, like, what kind of... Yeah, it's kind of boring. It seems like there's some underhanded stuff going on that we're not quite aware of yet. We spent two episodes of firing people, and that's about it. (laughs) That's all we know. Yeah, so 
I'm assuming we'll get the ball rolling more about what exactly this whole evolution thing means, right? In the uh, in you know coming episodes, right? In the meantime, we see an editorial meeting at the Washington Enquirer, right? That's the name of the newspaper. Uh, Herald. Herald, <laughs> not, the, not the Enquirer. The, the Enquirer. <laughs> at the Herald, and um, Zoe's pitching a story on bats being born to a woman. And then <laughs> Zoe busts in, as, just as this Janine girl is saying that she doesn't have anything on Kern. Zoe busts in and says that she has this you extra, know, she extra has, hot tip. That's right. She has the blo- this guy on record saying that Kern wrote the editorial. Um, <laughs> and so we see basically, you know, immediately they decide they're going to run with the story. And we cut to Zoe meeting with Frank in the subway station. And he's feeding her the information that Kern is now out because, you know, Zoe plants this story um, or, or publishes the, the story about Kern being the one to write the, blo- or write the editorial in the newspaper in college. So Kern is again in newspaper, you know, he's denying it and on the news stations and saying that he's a friend of, you know, he's a friend of Israel and he says something against Palestine. Then you see someone else saying like, you know, the Palestinians getting mad at him now. And it's just like, he's, he's offended both the Israelis and the Palestinians. And it's like, he's not good with anybody. So, you know, he's off. Totally. I was getting major vibes about the Chuck Hagel, uh, nomination recently. I, a, very, a lot of this very, is very inspired. Yeah. It's, very timely. It's and they didn't plan it. Yeah, it is interesting. And you see this kind of fateful scene where Linda is inviting Kern into her office and you know, that he's like, you know, what's happening. So you see Frank meeting with Zoe in the subway station. He says, Kern is out. And then he says, I just want you to publish the name Catherine Durant is the next. Right. What? And she so, says, is that really the next candidate? He says, she will be once you, once you publish it. Um, and that's kind that, of the whole idea we were saying about like creating the news instead of. Right. Once Zoe writes that, it gets embedded into the minds of the readers who are voters. And then it trickles all the way back to the people in uh, Washington. And, you know, they have to go with well they don't have to but that you know they're heavily influenced by their constituents right so yeah so zoe kind of gets it in out there into the zeitgeist and everything like that and so then you see frank and linda's office and she compliments him on the education bill and everything like that which again played right into his palm um and then she asks him about what he thinks about durant his exact pick you know he he totally like we said this is he couldn't have set this up any better she, she asks him what he thinks about, should Kern be gone? Is Durant in next? And he says, well, she's not my first choice, but in other, I mean, she would be pretty good. And basically, again, makes it sound like it's not his idea, but he approves kind of thing. Exactly. Um, I mean, he, does a, he does a really good job of making people think it's their idea. Mm-hmm. He's, he, he's a master manipulator. He's a puppet master. He's building the house of cards, you know? Very uh, precarious house of cards, but he's building it. Um, so... We know that where this is going, and we can only assume that you know she's gonna, you know, Durant's gonna be the one nominated because of this. Um, in the meantime, Zoe is going on air for the first time for like a TV interview, and we see very bitter uh, political reporter Janine. Janine. Zoe comes out of the bathroom saying, "Who are you fucking to get these tips?" You know, she's very bitter, and I, we, I'm assuming that what's gonna happen here is Janine is gonna follow Zoe and see her and uh, Frank together. Don't you just feel like that's going to I, I wrote thing? down, she's like the tension's there, and she wants to know who Zoe's source is. She's going to find out, and then she's going to either hold that above her or try to sabotage her or throw her under the bus eventually. 
I there's some blackmail coming or something along those lines, or Frank is going to be outed in one way or another. But I have a feeling that we have some Janine followings that we to, to to get the dirt on her because she's clearly looking for something. We had this awkward moment where like Janine is looking really angry over at Zoe as she's going on air, and like also the editor, Zoe's editor, is like. Is he? I, what was his look on his face? He's like looking over, and he seems kind of like pissed or upset, like disturbed about something. Maybe he's does it like where Zoe's tips are coming from. He's kind of looking over. At, you know, the curly haired guy with the glasses. Yeah, 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 the about. head guy. Yeah, I don't. I you know, I I probably missed that. I don't. I don't remember what he looked like or how he was looking. He looked a little bit questionable too, and maybe he was just kind of wondering why Zoe's skyrocketing all of a sudden and how she went about getting all these, you know, all this great, all these great tips too. Or as an editor, how he's going to handle all this, and he probably needs to be fact checking and source checking and and all that. Which they're kind of letting her run with her anonymous sources all over the place, which I've heard from some other friends say that they would never get away with that if they're that would never happen for an unproven um, reporter. I well, right. I don't think, but. So they're obviously playing uh, very loosely with with ethics and everything, which you think th- this guy would be a little bit more, you know, by the book, considering he gave this big speech last episode about being kind of the stalwart of traditional journalism and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, this guy's an old school print reporter journalist with that didn't even want his young reporter to have a blog. I mean, yeah. I. I I'm very hesitant to believe that he would uh, let uh, his 20-something reporter run with an anonymous source over these serious uh, national issue stories. Well, he seems to be seduced by the possibility of these big stories to some degree. may not be too uh, far from the truth in in this day and age when, as cliché as it is, print is dying, so he needs something to sell papers without going TMZ route. You get seduced by, you know, the sensational headlines. And that's kind of, you know, in some degree, what are they doing here? Um, So that's kind of the journalism plot wrapped up for this episode. In the meantime, we see Remy um, meets with Frank again. And Frank basically tells him that Sandcorp's going to be good with Kathy Durant, that she's pro-Sandcorp and everything, because we know that Kathy Durant is uh, now pretty much going to be Frank's puppet. In Frank's pocket. Mm-hmm. Or at least we assume so. We'll see what actually happens. Right. Well, Linda there, so. Vasquez was too at one point. Right. And so exactly. And so uh, I think we're assuming Sandcorp is going to get some major fracking deals going on or something like that. Um, in the meantime, we have uh, this moment where well, not in the meantime, but after that, Frank goes outside and we have this weird scene where there's like this crazy man screaming and the police protester like, have like handcuffed him to a telephone pole and like. Frank goes up to him and like does like basically like a dog whisper kind of thing and looks in his eyes and like makes the guy stop screaming. He looks at him like he is a dog. Like he treats him like an animal, which they kind of made the guy look with like his beard and like his long hair and everything like that. He looks like a caveman a little bit. And I'm totally, sure, I was like, thinking Geico. Was this guy supposed to be like a tree hugger or a homeless guy? What exactly? I think a cliche hippie protester. What's he even protesting? I guess we're not even clear. But then Frank like does this thing about like, no one can hear you. No one will remember you. Go home. <laughs> kind of like right. You are nothing. No one cares. You're insignificant. Basically, was that was that just supposed to be like a social hierarchy statement, or what? What was going on there? I don't know. It felt a little out of place, but when, the way he said it, I did kind of get the idea that it was a hierarchy uh, uh, show of of power. You know that 
you think that you're doing something significant for your cause or for this country, but in reality, here's a here's the you know majority whip coming down. He's like, I could give two shits about you. Like, no one cares what you're doing. You know, you're nothing. Go home. You have no voice. Yeah, right. This is power is your voice, basically. And maybe that's what maybe that's what we're supposed to pull from it. Um, and then obviously the episode ends with Claire getting home to the sound of the rowing machine in the basement. She goes down and kind of quietly watches him from the stairs. What do you make of that? I mean, clearly we see, I mean, Claire triumphing and her pushing him to do the rowing machine. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is that inspired him to do the rowing machine. I mean, obviously Claire's cajoling a little bit, but maybe also the fact that, you know, he's kind of riding the high of everything falling into place so much that he has energy that needs to be exhorted. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he says he walks like all day. So it, it wasn't, I don't think it was an exercise thing. I, 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 but I don't know if it was to appease his wife either. I, I, I really, I don't know. It, maybe like an adrenaline release or something like that. I mean, could, that, that could make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause since everything's going so well for him, he's kind of got to find, got to find like a way to, you know, all this celebrate bottled up plans you know i don't know everything is going pretty smoothly for him and you know with a tv show like this it's not going to go smoothly forever so something's coming down the line right too smoothly it's going far too smoothly and i think there's a couple things that we should look out for i think one of them being um you know the sandcorp thing is going to continue um i'm assuming the deals are not going to go through as planned and he's going to have to um, continue to be kind of confronted by them wanting money, basically, or, or deals, you know, special deals for drilling or whatever. Um, I think that Frank's dirty staffer is kind of going onto the dark side a little bit, so we'll kind of have to see what happens there. And obviously Russo is a little bit of a wild card, too. Um, and I don't know, do you think it's a possible... Well, I think it's possible that Zoe is going to be followed by this Janine character. Do you think that we're going to see any romantic kind of thing between Zoe and Frank? I hope not. I think that would be awkward, as of right now at least. I mean, they they're, they both seem way too career-driven. I mean, he laughed in her face when she tried to somewhat seduce him in the first episode. So I think that's below both of them at this point, and to create a romantic entanglement between the two. I think as of right now it would show lazy writing just to cause drama or tension where it would doesn't really make sense. I agree. Right now it would be a cheap trick. So unless something interesting happens, I feel like I hope they avoid that dynamic a little bit. I I feel like there's a lot that still – we need a little bit of an episode focusing on exactly where this whole plot with uh, Claire's Charity is going. Yeah. Um, that seems a little just depressing right now with all the firings and – the underdeveloped, yeah. We need to... There's not a clear vision yet for us. Of the not, only purpose it's shown is that there's some connection with Frank, and there's also... The the only other thing that I've learned from that whole th- situation is that Claire sucks. She's hella mean. It's been... It's been clear... Yeah, it's character development for Claire, I guess. Um, and we see her, you know, doing a lot of running in this episode, too, and, like, she's just super fit. Basically, she's, like, a badass... Ice Queen. Yeah. Um, type A woman. So, or man. And and Frank's type A too. And so. Right. She's, but in their relationship, she seems to be the dominant, which is, like we said, an interesting, I mean, 
I think their relationship is obviously going to be a major theme throughout this too. And yeah, I'm excited to see how that develops, though, for sure. Mm-hmm. If the head turns in the neck, kind of thing. I can't. But I, oh God, I cannot believe I whipped out that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Decapitation or something. So over, <laughs> overall, compared to the first episode, what do you think on a on a rating scale? Um, it's still going to keep me going. Uh, I would give it a three point seven five. I'm getting real fractional on this. Um, oh, it's, wow. I don't think it was as good as last week's. Or well, as as or chapter one, but um, it's still exciting to see where things go. I, I need a little more drama and things to not go as smoothly, or Frank to kind of have to overcome some obstacles uh, in the future, which I I no doubt I believe that that's going to happen. But this was a pretty uh, fluid episode as far as no obstacles outside of Claire having to fire her assistant. That's the only thing I really felt bad about in this whole thing what about you i agree with you i i'm gonna give a little i'm gonna give it a three out of five um i feel like there was some really there was some good lines in this one but i i think the the first episode i liked the camera work and i liked the the dialogue a little bit better um and i do feel like so much of this was preposition or um you know plot building in this episode um i think we're building we're trying to build tension i think we're trying to build the house of cards up to be knocked down um, or at least part of it knocked down and maybe rebuilt, and maybe that'll kind of be the cycle that the you know series goes through. But uh, we see all the cards kind of being slowly slid into place, and I kind of want to see how Frank deals. I mean, like you said, we've seen him um, kind of divide and con- or you know conquer thus far. I want to see how he deals with adversity a little bit. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. Yep, I agree. Great. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, we want to uh, remind you that you can submit your questions or comments to this American Horror, or sorry, this American, or this House of Cards podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also um, check us out on Facebook at this House of Cards podcast. And of course, leave us reviews and comments on iTunes. Uh, Chris, where can people find more of uh, what you're talking about this week? Hey, I'm on Twitter uh, at Chris Houston. It's Chris with a K. Where about you? Where about you, Tyler? Find me at TJMoss11 on Twitter. All right, everybody. Well, I hope you have a great week. Um, And we look forward to talking to you next week. See ya. I don't want to be your friend. I just want to be your